Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. We come this morning to the Old Testament book of Micah, and we are studying through the 12 minor prophets this summer. So I invite you to open up to Micah chapter 1, we'll begin there. As always, we have pew Bibles if you need them, and I encourage you to follow along that way. Um, as we did with the books of Hosea and Joel, our plan is to spend a few minutes reviewing the book as a whole and then focus the remainder of our time on one pericope of scripture from this book. So let's begin in verse 1, Micah chapter 1 says, The word of the Lord, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Now right away we have some notable truths. First of all, Micah says this is a message from God. This isn't a, a group of Micah's opinions or letters to the editor. This is God's message, and it's through Micah. And that tells us that God, though he is sovereign, uses sovereign means to carry out his purposes. And the means that he used to convey this revealed word to the nation of Israel is the prophet Micah. He was uh, from the town of Morasheth, which we know little about because it was such a small farming community. We know it was about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem, not very strategically important militarily. And he identifies the time period in which he prophesied by the kings who were on the throne in Judah during his ministry. There were three of them, which tells us it was a long ministry spanning the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all of whom reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Micah lived. Now this would mean that he was a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah and some of the other prophets that prophesied and lived in the 8th century B.C., and as you know, for most of that century, the nation of Israel was in spiritual decline. You remember that after Solomon's death, the nation divided into northern and southern kingdoms with separate governments, separate capital cities. And it seems that the northern kingdom was even further down the slope of idolatry than the southern kingdom. God had already decided to disperse the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom by giving them over to their enemies, the Assyrians. Look at verse 6. He says, For I will make Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom, a heap of ruins in the open country. So Micah is calling on Judah to learn from the sins of Samaria and repent before it's too late. That is, before the same thing happens to them. And there was a brief spiritual awakening under King Hezekiah before God ultimately sent the southern kingdom into Babylonian captivity over 100 years later. So you have a prophet we know almost nothing about except his name, Micah, whose name it really means a question. Who is like our God? Who is a God like you? He's from a rural setting, and he's calling a sinful nation to repentance. And so if I were to put a heading over the entire book, it would be Micah, a country preacher's message to a nation in decline. Now, I relate to that on a whole lot of levels. Uh, we, we see the structure here. There are seven chapters. Of course, those were added later by editors, but they are divided into three separate messages, very clearly defined. 
We call them oracles. Uh, the first division is comprised of chapters 1 and 2. The second, verse, uh, chapters 3 through 5. And the final two chapters, 6 and 7, a separate and third setting. They're clearly marked by the appearance of the word here, H-E-A-R. Uh, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all it contains. And then chapter 3, verse 1. Hear now, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. It is not for you to know justice. And then chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountain. So those are the three divisions. When you see that phrase here, you know you've entered a new division. And I have provided a structural outline as you came in this morning for these three divisions. So let's walk through them briefly before we look at our pericope. Chapters 1 and 2 thematically is about God as judge and savior. Micah, like many prophets, is announcing a coming judgment because of the sins of the people. He predicts both the destruction of the northern kingdom, we find that in verse 6, and the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom, that's found in verse 16 of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he pronounces curses or woes on oppressors, that is, people who were using their wealth and power to keep down other people. One of the sins of the land was greed. The rich were oppressing the poor. You can see that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's just read that. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. They can't even sleep at night because they're staying awake, figuring out how to separate people from their money. When morning comes, they do it. That is the plot that they devise on their beds. They do in the morning when they get up. For it is the power of their hands. They covet fields, that is real estate, and then seize them, that is by illegal means, and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house of his inheritance. And so one of the great sins of Israel at the time of Micah was greed. Now, uh, he goes on and says that the widows and orphans are being abused. And we know that God has a special place in his heart for the widows and orphans. Um, we know in James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows and keep oneself unstained by the world. And then we find in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, a promise of a remnant. Just as we saw in the book of Romans, God always has a faithful few who even in the worst of times spiritually are faithful to him. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the midst of the pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate and go by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. So that's the first section. The second section, chapters 3 through 5, Micah is presented as a courtroom attorney, bringing an indictment against the land. Now this is a theme we see in both Testaments. Paul did it in the book of Romans in chapters 1 and 2 where he indicted all of humanity as guilty and worthy of God's wrath. We saw it last week in Joel and the week before in Hosea where God, through the prophet, is calling the nation guilty. And he says in chapter 3, verse 2, that the leaders are corrupt. And I want you to see this with your own eyes and underline it. Chapter 3, verse 2, speaking to the rulers of the house of Israel, he says, you hate good and love evil. Does that sound familiar to you? 
when the rulers of your land hate good and love evil. That's a, a pitiful position to be in, and that's where they found themselves. Their prophets were also corrupt. They wouldn't renounce sin or warn of judgment. But then in chapter 4, we have a wonderful promise that one day God's going to make all things right. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, and it will come about in the last days. Now, that's the phrase we saw earlier talking about the millennial kingdom, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountain. So he's looking forward eschatologically into the future where Israel will once again be prominent and the people will come from all over the world to be ruled from Jerusalem. And of course, this is speaking of Christ's kingdom. And for there to be a kingdom on earth, Christ has to come. And then we come to chapter 5, verse 2. If you're familiar with any verse in Micah, it's this one. We read it at Christmas time. You have it on your Christmas cards. Micah 5, 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. That is, he has no beginning and he has no end. That can only mean Jesus, right? And there, of course, you have a great prophecy of where Jesus would be born. Of course, that was completed when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, we see this indictment of the rulers, and then we see uh, the third section, beginning in chapter 6, where Judah is found guilty, but God is proven faithful. So in chapter 6, God reads the indictment. Let's read chapter 6, verse 1. Now what the Lord is saying, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and your enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Here is God reading the indictment. We heard some things about indictments this week in the news. Here is God reading the charges against Israel. And then he goes through and he declares that they have broken all of his covenant promises. You remember that when God used Moses to lead the Hebrew slaves out of bondage, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and he made a covenant with them before he allowed them to go into the promised land. And there were curses associated with disobedience and there were blessings associated with obedience. And he is charging them with breaking the covenant of God, which of course was true. They were guilty. And then chapter 7, the last chapter, the prophet laments the ubiquity of sin in the land. Everywhere he turned, there was nothing but sin. Listen to what he says about the nation of Israel during his day. The godly person has perished from the land. And there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul. So they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright like a thorn hedge. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. For her who lies in her bosom, guard her lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughters rise up against mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. 
That is, that even natural familial love was absent in the land. People were suing their own relatives, taking them to court and doing violence against them. Now, let's think about, in summary, what we've seen about this nation, this once great nation of Israel. You don't have to be a prophet or a preacher to see the similarities between the situation in Micah's day and our own day. Just as Israel was a nation in spiritual decline, ours is a nation in spiritual decline. Like them, our nation, uh, one of the fastest growing segments of our population, demographers call the nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E. That is, when asked on a survey, what is your religion of preference, they say none. That's the fastest growing demographic in our population. Not only is spiritual morality on decline, uh, morality is in decline. Like them, our society seems to love evil and hate good. Like their society, in ours, the most helpless are at risk. In my society, it was the widow and orphan. In our day, the most dangerous place for a child is in his mother's womb. Did you know last year in New York City, there were more African-American babies aborted than were born alive? There is corruption at every level. Corruption in the government, corruption in business. We have business leaders today promoting sexual perversion of every sort in the name of inclusion and diversity. We have corruption in the education system where our kids are being taught to dishonor the things that God honors and hate the thing that God loves. And there is, worst of all, I fear, an often deafening silence from preachers concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Rather than solemnity about what's going on in the world, there is flippancy about the things of God in the pulpit. So what does God want? That's the question of the day. What does God want from those of us living in this time of such rapid and obvious spiritual decline? In fact, you might have asked that very question of God as you sat in your living room and watched the news this week and you see all that's happening around us. And so the question is the title of the sermon this morning. What do you want from me living in a time of spiritual decline? Well, our text this morning is Micah chapter 6. Verses 6 through 8. And like nowhere else in the Bible, God answers this question of what he wants from his people. Let's, let's read it now. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the Lord on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We have before you the simplest of sermon outlines, two points in answer to the question, what does God want from us? The first point is what God does not want. The second point is what God wants. Let's begin with the first one. What does God not want? 
And then he lists a series of five rhetorical questions beginning in verse six. The first one is this, what shall I come to the Lord? With what shall I come to the Lord? Micah is putting these questions in the mouth of the people he's preaching to and warning, that is the citizens of Judah. He's saying, I hear you asking me, what does the Lord want from me? With what shall I come to the Lord? Now they're speaking of their offerings, their sacrifices. He has listed their sins and declared them guilty and worthy of God's judgment. And their assumption is that God can be satisfied like the gods of Assyria with offerings and sacrifices so that he won't kill them ultimately. And so they start listing possibilities that might assuage God's anger. By the way, they're also expressing a, willing to do, a willingness to do these things. Number one, he says, shall we bring offerings of yearling calves? Now that's extravagant because God did prescribe to Moses a series of offerings that could be made, sin offerings, and one was burnt offerings. They literally would take an animal, a calf in many cases, slaughter him, and then burn up the flesh. And the idea was that the aroma of it would go up to the Lord. Of course, the New Testament makes it clear that all of those offerings were but foreshadowing and typical prophecy of the one true sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they said, shall we bring yearling calves? I was talking to one of the men in our church before the service today who has a farm. He was asking about how many calves he had this spring, and he told me. And a yearling calf is a calf who's made it to the one-year mark. And a yearling calf is worth lots more than a newborn calf. It weighs more, and the idea is that it's going to survive if it makes that first year. And so God prescribed these sacrifices. They could sacrifice a calf as young as eight days old, which wasn't worth very much. But if they waited till the calf was a yearling, then it would be an extravagant offering. So they said, should we give an extravagant offering? And then they asked a second question, should we bring thousands of rams? Now take that very literally. A ram, of course, is a male sheep, very valuable for breeding stock. And should we bring thousands of these rams? That is another great offering. Or rivers of oil. So as the burnt offerings were being consumed, they would pour olive oil over it. They called these uh, oblations. So we'll pour out rivers of oils if it were satisfy, satisfy the Lord's anger. And then they ask an incredible question. All of these are progressively more expensive and valuable, by the way. A yearling calf, thousands of rams, rivers of oils. Then they ask this incredible and telling question, should I bring my firstborn child? Now that sounds like hyperbole. Sometimes when we go and look at uh, stickers on a new car or truck, we say, well, they want my firstborn. That, that's outrageously expensive. That's the point, but they were taking it literally because the Assyrians literally sacrificed their firstborn children. They ran them through the fire, it was called, to satisfy their gods, their most valuable possession, their firstborn child. They would kill him to assuage the anger of these false gods. In fact, two kings of Israel did this, and God was outraged because of it. And so the implication, God doesn't want any of that stuff. In fact, he has expressly forbidden some of this. So let's bring it to our own day. 
What does God not want from us living in this period of spiritual decline? He does not want religious works meant to appease his wrath. See, the Pharisees of Jesus' day would serve to make this truth obvious. Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said of the Pharisees, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They meticulously kept the Old Testament ceremonial law. They made every sacrifice. They attended every festival, but their heart was far from the Lord. God doesn't want our sacrifices without our heart. I think of King Saul, who was told by God to defeat the enemies and not to take any of the spoils of war. You remember? And yet he held back some of the choicest cattle and and the most valuable things from the land. And when the prophet came, he heard the sheep bleeding and the cattle mooing. And he says, what's this sound I hear? And he says, oh, it's for a sacrifice to God. And you remember what the prophet said to him? To hearken is better than sacrifice. To obey than the fat of rams. God cares about obedience more than the externals. And so it is in our day. What God is not looking from us is religion. There's a church on every corner in this country. And yet, we continue to go down that slope of spiritual decline. The second thing God doesn't want for us living in this time of spiritual decline is grand gestures and pronouncements. Their grand gesture was they were going to slaughter thousands of rams and pour out rivers of oil to the Lord. God doesn't want grand gestures and pronouncements. I remember 20 years ago now, some of the billionaires of the world got together and they decided they were going to use their wealth to solve all the world's social problems. And they came out with something called a giving pledge. It was a campaign founded by two well-known billionaires in this country whose names you all know to encourage wealthy people to contribute the majority of their wealth to philanthropic causes upon their death. And as of June of last year, there were 236 billionaires who had signed up for this giving pledge. And look, I'm not against generosity. I I think that's a good thing. Except the problem is that one of the two founders of this organization made the first contribution of a billion dollars. B. He wrote a check for a billion dollars to start this campaign. And when they interviewed him, he said this, there's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a good way. And he's absolutely wrong to hearken is better than sacrifice, to obey than the fat of rams or a billion dollar check. God's not interested in grand gestures and pronouncements. He's not, thirdly, interested in sinful actions in the name of religion. See, as our nation has gone into spiritual decline, what we have seen on the religious front is a whole group of quote-unquote Christians taking the stance, if you can't beat them, join them. And so we've moved the goalpost and we've lowered the standards of morality and what is truth to make the tent broad enough to keep those people in. And so we have quote-unquote churches on their websites who are announcing that they are LGBTQ affirming. They are announcing that they're pro-abortion and that they are gender blending. And friends, God does not want sinful actions in the name of religion any more than he wanted child sacrifice in the days of Micah. So if those are the things that God clearly does not want from us, 
his people living in a period of decline, what does he want? And that's the next point, what God wants. It's found in verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. That is, it's nothing new. They're waiting on the edge of their seat to hear this grand secret, and it's what he's been telling them all along. He's told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Just three things. Isn't that interesting? People have the notion that to be a Christian is an encyclopedia of rules. In fact, 1 John 5, 3 says his commandments are not burdensome. In fact, when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees, one of the things he rebuked them for is that they put burdens on the back of the people that they themselves were not willing to carry. And so as he looked with compassion on those people, he says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's three commandments. Some have said this is the greatest verse in all of the Old Testament and I would be hard pressed to dispute with them. What the Lord requires of his people living in a nation in decline is to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. Let's walk through these three commandments. What does it mean to do justice? Now, justice is a word that is very popular in our culture, especially when it has the modifier social in front of it. We live in an era of the social justice warrior who is determined to force institutions that they view as systemically unfair into compliance to their worldview. Now, the problem with that is that their worldview is often sinful. See, the problem is that with that point of view, that the problem is the institutions, that means that they are never the one who's in the wrong. It's never the person in the mirror that needs to change. It's someone over there. Everyone then can be the victim, and no one is culpable for their own sins. So God, through Micah, calls his people to do justice. Note that word. There's a difference between doing justice and talking about it. There's a lot of talk about justice in our culture today and very little doing of justice at the local level. What is justice? Well, justice is simply doing that which is equitable and right in our dealings with other people. Every child understands that. There are many examples of justice in the Bible. One is in business. So if we do justice in business, we're honest. We pay our bills. We pay our employees a decent wage. If we're an employee, we work hard for the pay that we receive. If we do justice in our relationships, we honor the other person. We honor marriage of our own and other people's marriages. That is, we don't violate those covenants. In society, we stand up for those without power and money. And in Micah's day, that was the widow and the orphan. And in our day, it at least means the unborn, those who have no voice. And again, James 1.27, when God wanted to describe what true religion looked like, it was that, standing up for the widow and orphan. So that's what it means to do justice, to practice it as a habit of life. 
in your own dealings. Look, there's nothing easier than pointing out examples of injustice in the culture. That does not require anything of us than an arm and a finger on the end of it. To do justice requires us to take action, which is what most people are unwilling to do. But it's not only to do justice, it's to love kindness, which is another word for mercy. The Old Testament word is hesed. It's the closest word in the Old Testament to our New Testament word, grace. Charles Feinberg, who was a converted Jewish Christian, says mercy or kindness is a heart determined to do good to all other people. A heart determined to do good to all others. That is, it's a way of life rather than a one-time act of philanthropy. One-time acts of philanthropy are often a grand gesture designed to make up for years of sin. But to love kindness means to make it a way of life. That is, it's your determined practice that as you encounter people throughout your day, that you're determined to treat them with mercy. In other words, he's calling upon us to give other people the same measure of mercy that we desire from God in our own life. And here's what we know about God's mercy. The scripture says God delights in showing mercy. That is, he loves it. It's his way of life. Do you delight in showing mercy? Or when you show mercy occasionally, is it through clenched teeth? God delights in showing mercy. He's not miserly with it. I think of that woman with the alabaster bottle of perfume who came to Jesus and broke it open and poured it out upon him. And the disciples were angry. How we could have helped the poor by selling this perfume. And he commended this woman. And what she has done was, would be proclaimed, and it is to this day. She poured out blessing, and we are to pour out and shower out mercy and not be miserly with it. And then thirdly, he says we're to walk humbly. Now you know as we've studied the New Testament books like Ephesians that to walk as a Christian means your habitual pattern of daily life. He's not talking about putting one foot in front of the other. It's, it's your habitual way of life from day to day over a lifetime. The Apostle Paul often wrote about the Christian walk. Uh, he studied it. And as we went verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, we studied it. Do you remember Ephesians 5.15? Paul wrote, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Walking or living humbly begins with the recognition, friends, of God's sovereignty. The beginning point of humility is recognizing that He is God and we are not. That we do not control, as Mark reminded us last Sunday morning, we do not control the day of our death any more than we control the day of our birth. It also is recognition that everything that we have in this life, including the breath in our lungs, we owe to His providence. What did James, the brother of Jesus, say about it? Every good and perfect gift cometh from the Father above. It also recognizes... Humility, that is, that we need God desperately and he receives us 
graciously. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, Paul writes, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each measure of faith. One of the great commands in all the New Testament, don't think more highly of yourself than you should. The Bible is full of injunctions, commandments, exhortations to humility. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. And I think if it's anything that a nation in decline or an individual Christian in spiritual decline, and dare I say it on the eve of the Southern Baptist Convention, an entire denomination in decline, what we need is to walk humbly. To recognize that the Lord doesn't need us, but we need Him desperately. Trusting in Him for every step. This is what it means, as the New Testament says, to walk by faith and not by sight. Is what it means to walk humbly. See, arrogance says, I've got it figured out, Lord. I'll call upon you if I need you. I've got all the money I'll ever need till I die. I've got good health. I've got it all figured out. I'll set you aside for a later day. To walk by faith means every moment of every day is lived in the dependence of the sovereignty of God. Trusting Him for every step is the essence of humility. So here's our conclusion. You know we're living in a nation in spiritual decline, right? You do know that. So what does the Lord want from us? Well, He wants the same thing He has always wanted from His people, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Become very close, and I'll tell you a little secret. We can't do it by willpower. Our sin nature is too strong. What did he say? The, the righteous have perished from the land. Later the scripture says there's none righteous, not even one. And so what that tells us is we can't do it through self-reformation. We can't do it through determination. In fact, the apostle Paul cuts that idea off at the knees when he says by the works of the law will no flesh be justified so if the idea is we can come up with a plan or a strategy and fund it by the billionaires we can solve all of our problems he said don't even bother what is the solution we know what he doesn't want he doesn't want more religion he doesn't want grand gestures to try to make up for the past in the present. He doesn't want us to adopt the norms of the culture in the name of Christianity and kindness. What does he want? He wants us to come to him on his terms. Humbly. As I often tell you, with empty hands and outturned pockets. With the attitude of the public and Lord have mercy upon me the sinner. Remember, Michael put a question here in chapter 6 in the mouth of the people he had rebuked. With what shall I come to the Lord? Well, the answer is a broken heart. 
Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. And friend, that's true of a nation. If we want revival in our nation, we have to be broken of our arrogance and our pride. We have to come to God on his terms. It's true of a church. If we want to see the Lord do great things in our lives, we have to recognize our dependence upon him and our unworthiness. And if it's true in your own heart and life, if you're an unbeliever here today, the beginning point of a relationship with God is humility. God doesn't lack anything that you bring to the table. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Run to him. He is the solution. He's not going to call upon you to do grand gestures. He's not going to be pleased with coming to church two more times a month. What he requires of you is a changed heart. And only he can do it through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Father, I'm reminded of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. A very religious man, and yet a man who clearly was a sinner. Jesus stopped him right in his tracks and says, you must be born again. You have to have your heart totally transformed to be right with him. Father, I pray if there's one lost soul here today who knows you not, that you would grant to them faith and repentance. Open their eyes, Lord, through your spirit. Show them their spiritual poverty. Grant them humility to come to you on your terms. Father, I thank you for many brothers and sisters in Christ who at a time in the past you brought to that point and who are seeking to make progress in sanctification. But Lord, we know that uh, we're not immune from the impact of this worldview that is ubiquitous. It's all around us. self-satisfaction, loving evil and hating good. And Lord, we want to remain distinct and different from the world without growing cynical. Father, you have us in this world that is in spiritual decline for a reason, to be salt and light so that it is not as terrible as it possibly could be without our presence. You want us to hold up the light of the gospel and you, even in this time of decline, continue to save souls. And Father, help us to do that until Jesus comes. Help us to not grow weary in doing what is right. Help us to not capitulate and join the other side out of frustration. Father, I, I thank you for your word that exhorts us, it encourages us, but it also warns us. Father, I thank you for the way that the book of Micah ends with great encouragement. Great encouragement, Lord. And you tell us that you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to your forefathers from the days of old. Lord, one day, according to Revelation, you're going to make all things new and all things right, not because we deserve it, not because we figure out how to please you, but because that's who you are. You keep your promises. You are faithful even when men are faithless.
thank you for who you are. And I lift these requests in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.